So Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I loved your book, uh, 60 Stories, about 30 Seconds, which came out yesterday. And everyone check it out. It's, it's a very fantastic uh, read, very easy and uh, good in-depth, uh, I guess, about the backgrounds of TV commercials, which I don't really think there are too many books about uh, the making of TV commercials and TV directors. Um, so far, none. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you very much for those kind words. Right. Um, I hope that every one of your listeners immediately has gone to a purchase button mm -hmm. option somewhere. Yep. Um, what, I think one of the things that made me think there would be readers was exactly that. No one had written a book about how television commercials are made, more so about what it is to be a director in that industry. And it's one of these things where everyone in the world has exposure mm -hmm. to it, mostly trying to leave the room when they're on. You know, my whole job yeah. is preventing people from taking a leak or, or getting, a, getting a beer or something right. like that. Um, but I don't think anyone ever gives any thought to the process of how they're made. Very similar, I, I used to try to describe it to people in a thumbnail, Nolan say, it's kind of what Tony Bourdain did with Kitchen Confidential. When he wrote that, no one gave a second thought to what it was going on in the kitchen. Right. And then they read about it and they go, oh my God, are you serious? That's what's going hmm. on? Uh, and he made it a, you know, an interesting story. So I've tried to make it interesting and give people a little behind the scenes and then, you know, also be what it's like to be a person trying to cobble together a... Hmm a career in a really precarious world. Right. Now, do you think commercials work? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think sometimes they work. I think the ones that people always most often refer to as being the ones that are the most memorable are the least effective. <laughs> they always will ask someone, you know, what's your favorite commercial? and they'll describe something. And then they say, and what's it for? And they'll say, oh, it's for yeah. Apple computers. And they'll just have described a commercial that was for Jif peanut butter. So <laughs> it's a total waste of money for right. the people. Um, I think the people it does benefit, Noel, are the companies that are huge and that can mm -hmm. buy the volume to have the commercials, mm -hmm. have the messages repeat. Right. I think it's, you know, the same methodology it probably applies to what they do on, on the internet. Um, but, you know, a, a, whether somebody getting on and saying, oh, this toothpaste is better. You know, I, I was really happy to be able to pay my mortgage shooting commercials that said that whether they worked, I, you know, I never so saw anybody. <laughs> No one stood up from watching a commercial of mine to go buy the product. They went to the bathroom. Right. As I say. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> absolutely. Now, if you're like in like, I don't know, a dinner party, you bump into somebody and they ask you what you do, you say direct TV commercials and they say, which ones, which one is the first one that you mentioned? Well, I'll try to talk about the ones that are on the uh, air, on the air, but then I learned very quickly that no one watches TV anymore with commercials. Right. Mm -hmm. They go, Oh, I, I said, do you watch TV? And they go, yeah, I watch Netflix and right. I watch, Showtime. I say, so you don't no. see commercials. They right. go, I don't. And that's the level of imprint that my yeah. job has on people. <laughs> right. So 
you know, I'll say well, I did a, these campaigns for AT&T and for TD Waterhouse and for Ford and for Fiat. And, and then the ones that they'll actually remember even more when, when I'll say, you know, I did a hundred, I did 300 Advil commercials and <laughs> 200 Kellogg's commercials and McDonald's right. and this. Yeah. And they say, oh, you make a lot of commercials. And I said, yes, that's, yes. My, that's my job. Yeah. Um, I was never a guy, took me not that long, like 43 years to get over the fact <laughs> that, that I was going to just make commercials that were not shitty, but they right. were really the commercials, yeah. not the ones that people would, you know, in the office, they would go, oh, did you see that amazing Apple commercial in the morning? Yeah. Did you make that? Right. No. No. I, I you know, I made five or 10 significant commercials, but uh, there are a lot of guys who I was coming up against, but that was their whole thing. I only make right. amazing commercials. To me, that was a little bit of an oxymoron, but there <laughs> yeah. definitely were some good ones. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the good ones actually started right off at the top of the book was Crazy Eddie. And I, you know, growing up in New York, you saw those all the time, you know, yeah. going into the stores, they were I guess I'll say it insane. Those commercials were, were you know, fantastic. Uh, the story about getting them was even more insane. Yeah, he was. Uh, you obviously know who he is to a, a a viewer who might be not a New Yorker or a little younger. He had the largest uh, electronics retail chain in the Northeast for a couple of years. It was revealed within five years that he was also an embezzler of epic proportions. <laughs> right. um, he was, he was just absolutely filthy. You know, he took the company public and it, it was all yeah. smoke and mirrors, but I um, was introduced to the guy who was his ad buyer by a acquaintance of mine. Cause I was just, I would try to go to any meeting. Yeah. And so he said, would you have any ideas for Eddie who had the world's most obnoxious ads? And I said, well, you know, anything is going to be less hateful than what he's doing. And he said, well, you know, go out and talk to him. So I went to this meeting with the ad manager. I explained my idea, which was to do a takeoff on Casablanca, but put the crazy Eddie jingle into it instead of as time goes by. So the ad manager looked at me and he said, that's a fucking terrible idea. And I said, okay. He said, so yeah. whatever. So I left and then I came home and then about two weeks later, my phone rings and he says, uh, I want you to come out. I want you to come and tell your ideas to Eddie. And I said, great. Where should I come back out to Brooklyn? He said, no, come to Roosevelt hospital. Oh boy. And I said, this is, you know, 1977. I said, what are you, Roosevelt Hospital, what do you have a meeting yeah. room there? He said, no, Eddie's, uh, he goes, I'll explain it to you when you get yeah. here. As you probably know, I pull up in front of Roosevelt the next day and it was the kind of hospital that you had more people outside smoking in their, in their hospital gear on IVs, you know, it's just bad. Yeah. And he's out there, the ad guy's out there smoking. I go over and I say, why are we here? And he said, uh, Eddie's inside. He, uh, I said, he's inside. What happened? He said he got attacked three days ago uh, by a, a group of guys and he got stabbed like 16 times. I said, 16 times? He Holy said, yeah, he's, you know, he's not in great shape. So we go into the hospital. We go up to the 
sixth floor. At least the guy's got a private room. Right. And I go in and there's a guy who looks like, you know, s- sort of a wolf man meets the mummy. He's completely right. covered in gauze, no <laughs> oxygen tubes. He's got one leg in traction. This arm is up like this. There's just the eyes coming out. And, you know, I felt like I was going up to do balloon tricks for the kid with cancer. Because <laughs> the ad guy goes, okay, tell him your ideas. Right. I go, really? Yeah. And he says, yeah, it'd be great. So I explained the idea. And I learned at that point that Eddie's jaw is also wired shut. So he can't talk. So he's grunting answers. And the ad guy will go, what do you think? And he'd go, and he'd go, yeah, my thoughts exactly. You know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then he said something. He said, well, how much? And I gave him a, you know, as I said, I gave him a number that, you know, even your neighbor would have paid you to make the commercial just right. so he'd show it to his friends. I wasn't prepared for that question. And so the guy said, okay, proved, go make your commercial. Yeah. I said, seriously? So I did. And um, we shot this really inexpensive ad, but it happened to be put on Eddie sponsored a showing of Casablanca on WPIX. So they showed the commercial about a hundred times. Right. And then the village voice wrote an article about it saying, Oh, this is not an obnoxious, crazy Eddie ad. Like that was my first step into the business. So, uh, you know, I came off the set and I was 23 and I said, wow, you know, I'm a director, but I really wondered if it was going to continue being that, you know, whether I was going to more meetings in hospitals, hospital rooms and (laughs) stuff like that. Right. And you, you really, and you took out an ad, you know, full page ad kind of selling yourself. You you really had being your own one man PR person. You know, hundred percent had to be my own advocate. And, you know, I, I, I was, I had no mentor. I had nobody who was showing me anything and two different adjectives. People would say, Oh, you were naive. And I said, yeah, if you yeah. like me, I was naive. Really technically what I was, was stupid. I didn't know anything. <laughs> right. So that helped me a lot in a business which I learned was a business and it also kind of had rules, but I knew none of the rules, Noel. Yeah. So it, it I could do things that other people would go, Oh, Jesus, I would never, why are you doing right. that? I go, why not? Yeah. And especially then you basically gave yourself a super low price. So they're going to hire you thinking, you know, they can get this done on a really tight budget. And yeah, which- in the very beginning, you know, that was to me, seemed to me the most obvious way to go at it is anybody else was more experienced and they would right. charge more money. Of course. So I could say, well, you know, I know what it will cost me and I'll put a little bit of money on top of it. Mm. You hit a, you hit a, again, being stupid. There was probably a year or two where the biggest reaction I'd have to mm-hmm. when I quote a price was people feeling something was terribly wrong. Right. And, and so I would lose a job simply because it was too good too a low. deal. Right. So I had to learn a little bit better about how to do that. Yeah. How, how did you learn? I learned because in some ways, the people I was selling to know mm-hmm. would let me know we looked at other people for this job and we couldn't figure out how to do it for less than $25,000. And you were doing it for 10,000. And I heard it enough that I thought, Oh, I should start to 
raise my prices yeah. a little bit. And also I started to get a little better. So um, a lot of times people were working with me in the beginning, not by choice. It right. was just that their bosses were saying, that guy's really cheap, use him. Yeah. And they'd get there and go, the guy's 12 years old and <laughs> you know he's, he, he seems to know what he's doing, yeah. but this is, you know, they felt, they didn't have great confidence. Right. Um, but then as I got a little bit better at it, I started to charge more. And, but I was still an affordable commodity for a long time because I also yeah. learned that would give, yeah. that gave me a real chance to have a career right. and do it for a long time. There were guys who came in who would be really expensive and they'd do two or three good ads. And then as soon as they did a, an ad poorly for a lot of money, Done. no more career right so um you know by, by the end you know by after 20 years i was probably 25 years i was probably charging what other people were right and then at 30 i was charging more because i was suddenly in my spot but it was a long slow right climb i was always really jealous of these guys who would appear on the scene and in two years they're went going over to con and getting medals and yeah. you know, that was just not happening for me. Right. And you mentioned not having kind of like a mentor, you know, actually trying to find someone to ask advice, you know, for advice, have young directors come to you asking for advice? Uh, they have. Um, it's a strange industry in that um, you, when you're doing it, you really don't come in contact with other directors. You compete. Right. So, um, and I did, again, I did everything kind of ass backwards. So I started by opening my own company. So I was by right. myself. A lot of people, when they start, they join a larger company and there may be other directors there. Yeah. So the company I'm at now, uh, Assembly Films, uh, we have two companies, Assembly and MacGuffin, and there are 11 directors there. So, you know, I, I sometimes eat lunch with directors. Right. I talk to the young ones. Yeah. Mainly, I just bore the shit out of them with these stories because they're <laughs> right. like, Bruce, Bruce, tell the one about, yeah. I go, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm still like a, doing the balloon tricks for people. Right. But I wish, I certainly would have benefited, I think, from having yeah. somebody I could say, just tell me how this works. Right. You don't have to go into a whole deal. Yeah. Just how did, why do you do this as opposed to why do you do that? Right. And you said now the company you work for has like 11 directors. Now an ad, you know, they want to film an ad. How do they determine which director? I mean, if they don't want you, let's just say, how do they determine which director they want? Is it what one's available or mouth? How does that work? Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. Very weird part of the business. Um, directors in commercials are thought of and identified as having specialties. So I have three, four associates there who only take pictures of food. Okay. And they're called tabletop directors. Those four tabletop directors are probably responsible for 60% of the images you see on television of yeah. hamburgers, cereal, beer, Subway sandwiches, yeah. cups of coffee. Right. People who do what I do, uh, 
live action directors, there'll be a comedy director. There'll be a special effects director. There's an auto guy, guys who just specialize in autos. There's people, God bless them, who specialize in babies and worse animals. <laughs> so you can, there were, I think the lowest was people who did toy commercials because you had okay. kids right, and toys that didn't work. It was horrible. But I tried to always be a, um, just a director, a generalist, right. Right. because those were the guys I really admired. They were filmmakers. So sometimes I would do a funny commercial mm -hmm. and sometimes I would do a dramatic commercials. I, I got pretty well known for what I was doing with performances with actors. Mm -hmm. Um, I am I'm, I'm pretty good with actors and I'm pretty good with casting. So, uh, that's really what I get called on to do is to tell stories. And a lot of the times the stories I do are sort of sad. Mm -hmm. So I often get handed this mm -hmm. job of, they say, if you can make them cry, that would be good. Right. <laughs> and it's fine if it's for an appropriate product, but, right. you know, yeah. yeah. So, um, so we get broken down into those categories. Okay. Right. Um, and it's very hard if you're, you know, when they're wanting to go out and do something that's a very broad comedic commercial, they would never know, think of me. Okay. They would go to 10 other guys. Right. Okay. No, that's, I did not know that. That's, that's nuts. That's really good. Now, like you had one, you mentioned working with, you know, celebrities, uh, Gina Davis. Yeah. One for, I think it was TD. Warhouse, yeah. Trade, right? Uh, and she was Olympic archerist, right? Archer, you know, archer, I guess you say. Yeah, so that was her doing it, right? No, no stuntman, that was her legitimate, the apples. No stunts at all. She was, right. uh, she's a, like a quintuple threat, you know? Right. She's, she's a Academy Award winning actress. Yeah. She is a, I think her IQ is something like 150. Right. She's a, she's an immense member. Right. She was an Olympic archer, which she taught herself to do in three years. Wow. And, uh, and also the world's nicest person yeah. as I found in my experience okay. with people. But there was a, a, the day that I met her when I was working with her, we were doing everything on that. Mm. Those commercials was celebrities. But at this point, you know, I'm using people, tradespeople who are so amazing. The, the man who's yeah. photographing it for me is a man named Vilmos Zygmunt and won the Academy Award for okay. Close Encounters. I've got Gina Davis who's won the Academy Award. James right. um, uh, Lee Marvin's doing the voiceover. So okay. I'm working, I'm telling three Academy Award yeah. winners what to, what do. to do. And I'm waiting for someone to just come and walk me all out of the space. <laughs> right. so, what yeah. are you doing here? Right. But at that point, I'd been doing it long enough and, and uh, that I actually kind of did know what I was doing. Right. No, it's, I remember, you know, when reading the book and like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that ad. So I watched it on YouTube just recently. I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that ad. It was, yeah. it was well done. A lot, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of uh, Bruce's ads are on YouTube. You can go check them out there. Some are really good. Especially Crazy Eddie ones. They're all on there as well with uh yeah. Zales, Hallmark, a uh, bunch of different different ones. But one um one of my favorite athletes was Andre Agassi. And uh Are you a tennis he, player? I was back when I was actually in shape. But he, a tennis fan. Ago. Yeah, a tennis fan. Um 
not so much now, but you know, back in like the eighties, nineties, when it was, yeah. you know, when the Americans were still good and now it's just, you know, they stink. But uh, yeah. yeah, how obviously it really helped that you knew tennis to kind of reel him in. Uh, is that important for a director, obviously to know a little bit of background of what the actor does to, to help the, you know, the shoot go smoothly? I think it's a, I think a little of it depends on the personality of the person. Agassi, when I met him, was just yeah. the phenom at that point. Right. So he's got the hair, and yeah. he's really jumpy and skittish. And, uh, and he was just starting to do a lot of ads. And I knew a lot of the directors that he'd worked for. And these are the guys who I would yeah. always like want to say, I'm not that guy. Okay. You know, they right. have a hat on backwards, and they're going yeah. like this. And just, just fucking idiots right <laughs> so he'd had enough idiot experience that when he came on on the set that day i could mm -hmm. see it was like this so i said eh, you know let's get going i go i work much quicker than a normal person right. so the celebrities really like that because they're they don't want to be there anyway of course <laughs> Agassi was one of those people who once he understood that i knew how to play tennis and when i'd say when you go here mm -hmm you know, make sure that instead of hitting a slice back and hit something over the top and oh. put it down the baseline yeah. and try to, he was like, oh, you play tennis? <laughs> I said, yeah. Mm. He said, good. I made the mistake at the end because I got done so fast right. of saying, he said, this was the best shoot I've ever had. Yeah. Anything you need, ask my brother. Right. I said, I don't need anything from your brother, but would you play tennis with me right now for... 10 minutes yeah. and he looked at me with daggers, oh. you know, and I said, I said, just 10 minutes. He goes, okay, get out there. Yeah. So we go out and I, he sees that I can keep the ball in play and I play pretty, yeah. pretty well. That's three minutes. Right. And then he go, he grabs the ball and he goes, you ready? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, <shit. "Are> <laughs> what do you mean ready? We're playing right. tennis. Yeah. He goes, you ready? And I said, yeah. So we hit one, we hit another. Then the next thing I, is a sound of him hitting something. Yeah. Somehow the ball has gone by me. So <laughs> that's how it begins. And at the end, I said, why did you do that? Why, when he goes, why would I not do that? I want to beat you. I said, we're just fucking around. We're just playing. Yeah. He goes, that it's, it's my job. Yeah. Whereas, so I knew a little bit about tennis. Right. I also went over... I used to shoot a great deal in Italy and they would have me come over to do a lot of stories. They do beautiful advertising in yeah. Italy because a lot of it's 60 seconds and it's right. still in the theaters, but they had me work with Michael Schumacher okay. who yeah. at that point was the number one formula right. one driver in the world. But literally I am on the plane and responding to a phone call and the guy said the Schumacher is and I said I gotta you gotta stop I gotta ask you a question I said who is Michael Schumacher right they said funny I said no I'm serious I don't <laughs> yeah. know who he is he said he's the highest paid athlete in the world I said there's no way he's the highest paid athlete yeah. in the world it's, it's Michael Joy it's American basketball what are you oh, talking about right. and my Italian producer goes you, you Americans are really stupid <laughs> so I go over I meet yeah. go to Monza uh, go into Modena to meet Schumacher. We're going to work for a couple of days. Everybody's told me this guy is a nightmare. So I go in to meet him. 
I immediately start swearing a little bit. Right. He thinks that's okay. <laughs> I explained to him what we've got to do. Yeah. And, and then I said, but I'll get you done quickly. So it'll be all right. And he said, what do you know about formula one? And I said, nothing. Right. And he said, are you interested? I said, interested in anything. So he walks me over into the place with all the cars and gives me a 25 minute tour of how Ferrari right. drives, the computers, the this, that. Wow. He was the world's nicest guy. I found every time, Noel, that I would be completely honest with someone and particularly as a, a, a well-known person. Right. And just say, no, I don't really know. They would say, oh, well, let me show you this. Yeah. So it was, wasn't necessarily, the only people who got a little touchy were uh, if you were dealing with a supposedly famous actor who you didn't think was a very good actor. Right. Now, I don't know if you consider him not a good actor, but it was Charles Bronson. It, that situation compared to the Clint Eastwood, I guess, yeah. you know, one day after, after the other one. Um, both those stories were fascinating, uh, especially the Bronson one. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, the the job was um the job was really interesting because in three consecutive days i had to deal with lou gossett right. jr then charles bronson then clint and i was 32 years old and i thought i'm probably underqualified for this job yeah. um lou gossett was great and then the the charles bronson it just arrived very angry very angry at the driver, the right. limo driver we'd had bring him, who tr explained to us that this was all bullshit, that this was a performance we were watching yeah. that was about a um, a little errand he had to run. You can buy the book to figure yeah. out what the errand was. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I showed the shoot finish with Bronson, but I was pretty gun-shy figuring, you know, if this is Bronson at the height of Death Wish, Clint Eastwood is going to be... Yeah. Right. Just really impossible. And he wound up being the world's nicest guy, drives in in his car, yeah. goes, walks and has coffee with me, goes over to the set. Yeah. Um, so gracious to everybody, shooting the shit with everybody. But again, the cool part, and this I'll tip you from the book, is when you're talking with Clint normally, he's, he sounds like Clint. Right. But, but it's this. I turn the camera on. His voice goes down an octave, his face, right. and I go, oh my God, this is how a real movie star does this. Yeah. And at the end of the first take, I stopped and I went, it's so weird. Yeah. And he looks at me like, what, what, what do you think? How, <laughs> how do you think this happens? Yeah. But it was kind of a cool thing to watch. Very different than the experience with Mr. Bronson. Yeah, that's for sure. Now you were watching you know, Clint do his stuff and was hard for you to actually like kind of be a director there because it would seem like you were a fan watching him. It's a, it's a big problem when you're dealing with, uh, it, it's a problem. I'll tell you, it's a funny problem when you're dealing with any actors who are really good. They don't have to necessarily be movie stars, right. but when an actor who's really gifted gets in front of a camera and is doing a performance, yeah. it's so hard and so right. interesting. With Clint Eastwood, the weirdest part was for the, what we were doing, 
he was becoming Dirty Harry for us, just like Charles Bronson was becoming right. the Death Wish guy and Gossett was becoming the guy from Officer and a Gentleman. Mm -hmm. So here's Clint, high, puts the coffee down on the apple yeah. box, turns, slate, suddenly he's Dirty Harry. Right. Um, and yeah, I did maybe 10 takes and I, you know, I, I just couldn't figure really anything to say. I would say, well, I'm gonna move the camera a little quicker yeah. But I went over to the agency and, you know, they've hired you for 10 hours. Right. And we'd worked for about 35 minutes. And I went <laughs> over and I said, you know, I think we're done. Fortunately, they said, yeah. oh, yeah, we're done. This right. is great. Yeah. I said, you, you see it, right? I mean, right. it's not going to get any better. Right. They go, no, no, no. He's, he's exactly. Yeah. I said, but it's weird. What do we say? Thanks, Clint. You're you. Yeah. You know? But you don't feel like you're doing a lot. There are days when you work all yeah. harder. Right. Harder and longer. Yeah. And that was when your son was born. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. son with, and the, and the uh, very nice, very untalented young lady who <laughs> we had cast uh, complicit. I had been right. part of the thing. But the thing that I had never known to look for was that actresses could glue their ears to the sides of their heads during <laughs> right. audition processes. Yeah. So that then that would happen during the middle of the day. <laughs> so that's caused, uh, that was a very difficult thing to manage. Uh, my wife was in labor with our first child. So it looked like it was going to be a, I was just going to lose on all fronts, Once. but I was, I was very fortunate to have a, a wonderful makeup woman who not only had glue, who knew that that's yeah. part of the kit, right? but she was like strong. So, the first time the ear popped out after she'd glued it in, I said, what are we going to, she's, I got it. And she'd go over, swab the glue, put it behind the yeah. ear, and then just hold the woman's <laughs> head 45 seconds. Right. Take it off. She said, you've got 10 minutes, go. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's like stupid animal tricks. Yeah. Right. And there's one with a, definitely an animal doing some business, but I'm not going to mention that because I want people to read the book, yeah. which is a fantastic story. Uh, now you, you have 60 stories here. Have, did you remember all these? Did you like have a journal, at, you know, through life? I mean, like, did, everything was from memory. I I was able to uh, remember all of these stories because, oh. you know, I'm I'm probably a little boring to have as a friend for decades <laughs> because I've told them right. before. But uh, you know, one of the people don't ever want to hear when things go well. Uh, and at least I'm not a surgeon where I say, well, when this one died, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you can tell a story of, you know, yeah. somebody giving you trouble. But no, I did remember most of them. I, I remembered all of them. I think what I learned was when I started, I thought I would be able to come up with 30 stories. Yeah. Okay. And then I kept going and I went, oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And then I also sort of tried to make the book um, I tried to give it a little bit more uh, breadth. So instead of just being vi mm. funny vignettes, right. I put in stuff about what it was to be trying to ha have a young family, right. what stress that puts on it, what it was to have a business that looked like it was doing well and then not going well. And, and definitely showing how I was always trying different yeah. things to get ahead and those were 
you know, hopefully they're interesting, but they weren't, they weren't funny and they, and they weren't vignettes. They were more sort of like progress reports on right. here's where you've gotten to. Yeah. And my path was not, you know, my path again was a very long, slow curve yeah. as, as, as you saw, one of the things I say is, you know, a commercial director, I'd say the majority of people who try to do it have no career. The next group you get to be maybe f five years and then something right. happens and you're done. Then there's a sm very small group that gets to about 10 or 15. Yeah. You know, I've done this for 43, 44 years. So there's maybe mm -hmm. four guys who've had that long a run. And you're, so, and you're yeah. And you're still doing commercials now, right? I'm still, still doing them. I just shot a couple of them um, last week. I'm in the middle of editing them now. Okay. I definitely don't do, I, I definitely don't do the number that I did. Right. Uh, I've, I think I've overstayed my welcome by at least ten years. I don't understand why <laughs> I'm still working. Right. <laughs> but because it's a fickle, very fickle business. But I've been able, you know, I still have some clients, loyal clients who enjoy hiring and, and mm -hmm. me and I, you know, I, I, I do a pretty good job. And I had one of the producers I worked for, we'd finished a job and I said, Oh, you were, I heard you were in LA. This is before COVID. And I right. said, I heard you were in LA doing something. Da, 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 da. And I said, how was that? I've heard about that director. She goes, remind me never again. <laughs> to work, never work with a director who doesn't have some gray hair. Because <laughs> these, 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 these young ones had yeah. so little experience. It's so, and I think, well, that, you know, yeah. at one point that was me. Right. Um, I think what's happened is because the expectations are so high now and money is so important and this and that, there's just no room for error. So sometimes working with a guy like me or, you know, peers of mine who have done this a lot, it's calmer. Right. It's like you, you're going to get it done. Yeah. You, you know how to light, you know how to work with actors, you know how to do this, you know how to get it done. You're not sitting, right. it's, you know, it's not your first rodeo. Right. Now, do you think, uh, has COVID kind of like shrunk some of these like companies ad budgets? Um, it's the industry stopped, right? It's, you know, what we do, as you well know, involves bringing 50, 60 people together in a, in a small yeah. space for 10 hours at a time. Right. Uh, so it stopped. They've just started to try to figure out protocols for being able to shoot commercials okay. <laughs> and maybe maybe they'll be able to do some unscripted stuff, no, where they are usually working yeah. with small crews. Right. None of my friends who work in episodic or feet, they haven't figured yeah. this out yet. Features right. you can go to Australia. Yeah. I've tried that. Um, I think it'll cause the industry to squeeze down. A lot of the cop companies are not very well capitalized, not well right. run. And what it will, and it's also caused them to be so anxious to work that they're all lowering their prices. Right. So I turned to somebody the other day and I said, 
I kind of wish I was a 25 year old director again. They go, right. why? It's horrible. <laughs> I say, no, I would, I'd be living in a one room apartment on mm -hmm. Avenue A. I can work for nothing and, right. I'll, and I'll create a career. Yeah. So there's, a, there's opportunity out there for somebody. Right. Absolutely. But the book came out yesterday. It's available on everywhere, right? Streaming. I mean, Hopefully, Kindle yeah, you can stuff. buy it at Amazon and Barnes right. and Noble and Book, uh, Indie Book or whatever that okay. the site's the, the right. sort of the aggregator for independent bookstores. Awesome. 60 yeah. stories, about 30 seconds. Bruce, this was great. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Noel. It was fun. And a special thanks to Bruce for joining me today. Go check out 60 Stories, about 30 seconds. It's out now. You can get it wherever books are sold. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Bruce Van Dusen. His website is BruceVanDusen.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first Noel 19 or like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next week.